0: The completion of the railroad brings very mixed results to California. The railroad was supposed to be this unalloyed benefit to the West, but it wasn't. So you have a situation of insecurity, grievance, and so the politicians weaponize theories of difference that are offered to explain why this is happening.
1: Welcome to A History of Xenophobia. From the gold mines to the rise of the far right today, my name is Ariel Glynn, and I'm the host of this History Hope podcast series. History Hope is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhope.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie. May Nye is Lung Family Professor of Asian American Studies and Professor of History, as well as being the co director of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race at Columbia University in New York. She's interested in the histories of immigration, citizenship, nationalism, and the Chinese diaspora. She's the author of the multiple award winning Impossible Subjects Illegal Aliens and the Making of Modern America from 2004, The Lucky Ones, One Family and the Extraordinary Invention of Chinese America from 2010, and from t- 2021, The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics, which we will be talking about in detail in this podcast. Before becoming a historian, May was a labor union organizer and educator in New York City. She's now writing another book called Nation of Immigrants A Short History of an Idea, which is under contract with Princeton University Press. May, thanks so much for taking the time out to speak to me today. So, maybe to place things in context, you talk. Uh, extensively about the gold rushes in the mid 19th century. How extraordinary were these gold rushes compared to more global general history of gold extraction over the centuries and millennia?
0: Well, first, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, The gold rushes in the 19th century are important for two reasons, I believe. First, the the amount of gold that was mined between 1848 and, and 1900 was more than that had been mined in the previous three thousand years total. So there's a tremendous amount that was that was mined, and this was possible because of uh, the expansion of capitalism in Euro-American societies uh, to the frontiers. Gold had been there. Gold is actually everywhere, and Native peoples were aware of gold in their midst, but they didn't value gold in the same way. Many Early modern societies valued gold as, as a kind of mark of social rank um, and or for its beauty, but they didn't consider it money. But once gold became the money commodity, it took on a whole another meaning. And gold was also mined in such huge quantities in the 19th century because it was possible to do with investment, uh, new technologies, as well as older technologies. Um, And the mass migration of people and the advent of long distance transportation. So all of these factors come together that enable uh, a massive extraction of gold. And towards the latter part of the 19th century, when gold is no longer mined in, in creeks and at the surface, but in deep, deep mines, then the question of capital investment and technology becomes paramount. So so that's the gold itself. But I think the consequence of the gold rushes and gold mining in the 19th century, there's two that are important. One is that it it accelerates and even you could say is a stimulus for it makes possible the global integration of the world's economy, not just through the ability to mine gold itself, but through the uh, rise of gold as international monetary standard and the Ability of uh, Western countries, mainly, to expand their trade and investment, especially throughout the world. So, if you think about the late nineteenth century, as many many scholars do, as the era of globalization or the first big globalization, that was in many ways possible with the amount of gold that was mined. And the second great consequence is that because of the gold rushes, the rushes themselves attracted people from all over the world. Um, it accelerated trends of mass migration uh, that were already in motion, but really brought together people in on the gold fields from all different parts of the world. And it contributed to nation building projects, um, especially in the Anglophone world, both in the United States and in the British settler colonies.
1: Yeah, you, you, you talk about how diverse they, uh, they were, these gold um, mines. And you mentioned how they were international contact zones on the frontier of Anglo-American societies. Could could you tell us? You know, I, I had you know, a broad idea of how um, multicultural they were, but then from reading your book, I realized I didn't know enough, and there was there was even more diversity than I thought. So you mentioned Hawaii. You mentioned. Australia, you mentioned also even internally within the United States that people brought enslaved people from uh, the south of the country to the west. And yeah, please enlighten us about how diverse uh, they were.
0: Well, one of the features of the era was not just long distance transportation, but long distance communication. So when the word of gold in California and then later Australia spreads, it sparks um, a great movement of people to those gold fields and in in terms of the california gold rush when gold was first discovered in 1848 uh, for the first year it's really a, a kind of local or regional or even pacific oriented affair um it does not is not declared official by the president of the united states and for for about a year so the big rush from the east coast um or what we call the 49ers Generation. You know, there's a whole year before that where people going to the gold fields in California are from the Pacific region. And by that I mean um, from Mexico, uh, especially from Sonora and northern Mexico, where there's a history of silver mining, but also from Chile and Peru, where there's also a history of mining uh, from Hawaii, because there is a an older Uh, sailing trade between the West Coast and Hawaii. And Hawaii also links to Asia, to Guangdong province and Hong Kong, and to Australia. So these early nodes start to bring people into California. They also come down from Oregon, which is a territory of the United States at the time. And then after it's declared official that the gold is is genuine uh, by the U.S. Treasury, towards the end of 1848 or early 1849, then you have a massive rush of people that comes from all corners of the United States. They also come from the British Isles. They come from Germany. They come from France and Belgium. They come from uh, China. And so it truly is an international contact zone as I, as I describe it.
1: Yeah, I'm... I'm this really challenges the idea of these 49ers, you know, being the kind of almost exclusive, these Euro-Americans coming, you know, conquering the West and, and, you know, know, changing the face of uh, California when you show that there was uh, indigenous people, there were Mexicans, there were African-Americans all involved. Um, Could you tell us a bit about the Chinese gold seekers? Where did they come from and what was their background? Because in, in essence, this is one of your main goals of the book. You know, you talk about, uh, quote, slaying the coolie myth. So maybe you could tell us a bit about what this coolie myth was and then what, what the reality on the ground was.
0: Well, the Chinese come a little later than the Europeans. They come uh, in early 1850 um, because news of gold doesn't reach Hong Kong until late 1849. Um, and it's brought by newspapers from Hawaii that bring news from California uh, to Hong Kong so the Chinese gold seekers are like gold seekers from the rest of the world they're mostly men they come as independent prospectors they come you know like others some of them come on uh, buy their tickets they're selling tickets on credit others use money from their families um they come uh, in solo or in small groups, often with people from their hometowns. So these are characteristics that apply to all gold seekers from around the world. Some of the early ones come in small companies with uh, an investor or manager who's contracted uh, workers to come with him. This was also practiced by people from Chile and Mexico um, and even from the American South. But what happens to the first gold seeking seekers that come as small companies is that they cannot hold their workers. You know, they, they, they do bring people on contracts, but it's a wide open gold field and people just walk away from their masters and they go strike it out on their own. So the practice of bringing contracted workers for the gold fields, whether it's from China or Chile or Mexico or elsewhere, dies out very, very quickly because nobody can hold their workers. Um, But so in the main, the Chinese are independent prospectors, like people from other parts of the world. And there's competition on the gold fields. You know, it's a it's a rush. Right. And everybody wants to get as much as possible as quickly as possible. Uh, So there's a lot of competition. There's fighting between people. People fight with each other, regardless of their national background. But they also fight group to group um, as well as internal to groups. And so there's just a lot of competition. And the white Americans uh, use nationalism uh, as a weapon of competition. They say, you know, all these foreigners are going to take the gold back to their home countries um, and the gold has to stay in America. So they use that to drive out the French. They drive out Belgians. They drive out the Australians. They drive off a lot of people from the gold fields. Um, The first people they drive off are the uh, Mexicans and the Chileans because they actually have more experience in gold mining. So they make more money (laughs) or they're more successful, uh, I should say. Um, So they're the first to be driven off. Um, And then they go after other Europeans. And then finally they go after the Chinese because they're among the latter uh, people to arrive. And what they say about the Chinese is is similar to what they say about other foreigners. At one level, they say, they're gonna take the gold out of the country and it's just staying in our country. But they also um, engage a lot of stereotypes about the Chinese. And these stereotypes become theorized, if I may say, by politicians to say that the Chinese are a menace to white society in California because they're not a free people and they say they come on contracts they're indentured they're like slaves. And in fact they're not as i as i just mentioned uh all the people who came on contracts um walked away from their their masters. So by the time they were making this charge it wasn't true. Um but it it was a way to associate Chinese with racial slavery in the south and with racial indenture in the former plantation colonies in the Caribbean. And so this was a kind of racial shorthand to say Chinese were coolies, um, which was a way of saying that they were like slaves and therefore a threat to free labor. And this was the what I call the coolie myth because it was not grounded in fact, but based on a racial stereotype that became more and more racialized over time. At first, it was just that they came on contracts, but then it was that Chinese were a coolie race that they were innately servile, innately incapable of uh, independent thought, innately incapable of assimilation. And so then it became something that could be said about any Chinese person, regardless of their actual status or occupation.
1: Yeah. And one of the many brilliant things about the book is how global it is. You know, we've talked uh, quite a lot about what happened in San Francisco, but your analysis moves to Victoria in Australia. And there, the Cooley myth doesn't seem as prominent, but many of the things you've just said about the inability to integrate and their uh, supposed foreignness and alienness is highlighted. Um, how, how was the rhetoric different in Australia?
0: You know, I was surprised when I began researching Australia how I didn't see charges that the Chinese were like slaves. They weren't, they weren't stereotyped in that way. It was much more inchoate. There were complaints about the Chinese, namely that they wasted water and water is a very precious resource. When you're um, digging for gold, there were complaints or criticism that they were not Christians, you know, that they were heathen people, but they didn't call them slaves. And I thought that was really striking. because it was so ubiquitous in California. And then I realized, well, it wouldn't have had much purchase to call people slaves. I mean, because they weren't, right? I mean, they weren't in California either, but it had such power to call them slaves. But it didn't have that kind of um, value in Australia because there was no slavery to compare them to, right? The history of unfreedom and bound labor in Australia is that, that arose from convict transportation. And that was not transportation of Africans. It was the English and Irish poor. So they couldn't racialize them in the same way that they were in the United States. It was a much looser kind of um, complaint. And and then what, what emerges I think in Australia during the gold rush is this anxiety that China is, that Australia is very close to China, that the whites in Australia feel that they are um, the out the last outpost of british civilization uh that they are a tiny tiny population on a tiny continent uh in Asia facing um the the side the the vastness and of size and population of china so there's this fear that they're going to be overrun uh by china and it's only later in the eighteen seventies in the context of um uh, urban working men's movements that the coolie trope is imported into Australia, and there they borrow directly from of uh, the United States the idea that Chinese are servile that they undermine white men's wages, um, et cetera, et cetera, and this becomes repurposed in Australia in the context a very different context the context of uh, kind of uh, national identity and formation which is a a project that is unabashedly white, right? That this is the white Australia movement that emerges and it emerges um, on the backs of the Chinese question.
1: You you talk about this opposition that generates itself in California and then also in Victoria and in the Australian colonies on the gold field, you know, that there's competition, there's sometimes attacks taking place. How does this manifest itself in more official Type of policies in in both locations, you know, in terms of restrictions, and you, you talk about how initially in Australia they they bring in different rules related to tonnage, and to you know because the British are in a bit of, of a dilemma because they don't want to antagonize the Chinese too much, and they're aware that they've told the Chinese of of the benefits of this kind of free market and free movement. So they they come up with with all these kind of strategies to get around this. Uh, Whereas in the United States, it can be at times more explicitly anti-Chinese. Could you maybe, I know it's a difficult one, but uh, briefly summarize how how both-
0: Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, while on the one hand, the, uh, the Australians import the Cooley trope, they're not able to replicate Chinese exclusion legislation that was in the United States until federation, until they become a self-governing dominion. And that's because within the British Empire, um, the British had uh, certain principles of, um, well, notional equality, <laughs> not genuine equality, obviously, uh, but also free migration and free trade. And, uh, and this was uh, something that was important from an imperial perspective. And so what begins to happen in the late 19th century is uh, a, a tension and then finally a divergence of interest between the, the imperial interest in London and the local settler colonial interest, which wants to exclude people of color. And from London's point of view, they need to have uh, a certain relationship with China, right, uh, which is already an unequal and colonial relationship, but it's based on certain principles of, of free trade. And the, the principle of free migration is important because um, the British have uh, colonies or, or territories like Hong Kong, like Singapore, uh, that ha- where everybody's a British subject, including Chinese born in those territories. So a Chinese who is a British subject, who travels from Singapore to Australia technically should have free rights of entry because you're traveling within the British empire. So these are all points of contention, uh, points of tension, and finally uh, points of uh, severe political conflict. So the Australians pass a lot of laws that, that are shot just shy of outright exclusion, like tonnage requirements, how many persons per ton on a ship is allowable. Um, They impose heavy taxes on arriving, people arriving from China, as well as taxes uh, once they live in Australia. And if you change your residence from one colony to another, you have to pay another tax. So these are all very onerous, but they fall short of um, outright exclusion. And it's only in 1901 uh, where they can pass a white Australia policy. And this is a kind of grand compromise within the British Empire which allows the settler colonies to pass exclusion laws um, as part of the price of keeping them in the empire, right? Rather than seeing them go completely independent, um, which is a great concern in in Britain at the time that they want to keep these colonies inside the empire, not lose them like the United States. So there's certain compromises they make. And it also Enables Britain to distance itself from these racial policies, right? By saying, "Well, that's not us. That's that's Australia. That's South Africa. That's New Zealand. That's Canada. It's not Britain. Um, and it doesn't. It's not an issue in Britain because the Chinese don't go there. You know, it's later after World War II when you have people from the former colonies, like from the Caribbean or from India and South Asia, that go to Britain. That they start to pass." new laws to exclude or to limit, you know, their access to um immigration and to citizenship.
1: Yeah, when we spoke to Marilyn Lake, we we briefly touched on the Natal dictation test that was part of this 1901 federation and this creation of this white Australia policy. But again, enabling Australia to discriminate based on race, but it's hiding it or you know, it's it's putting it behind um certain rules where it's not as ex- as explicit right. as, it, as it is in the United States. But initially, California had difficulties because immigration was a federal issue. So could you tell us That's about right. what happened on, on the U.S. level? Because we actually talked to Hirota, another author, on um, exporting the poor. And Hide told us about how certain states like Massachusetts and New York you know, deported poor Irish immigrants in the 1840s and 50s and 1860s, even though they shouldn't have, it was against federal law. Uh, California also had difficulties because it wanted to put in enforce these restrictions against uh, Chinese immigrants, yet Washington was saying you can't do that. At least initially, right?
0: Right. That's a really important point. Uh, thanks for raising it. Well, California and the Pacific Coast states in general um, are uh, extreme in their desires to exclude Chinese and by the 1870s there are strong anti-Chinese movements uh throughout the west coast um the Chinese must go was is their slogan Um, but they can't get it passed through congress they you know they they have had state laws that get struck down because it's uh immigration is established as a federal matter by 1875 So they have to lobby. They lobby for national legislation. And that's interesting because it's not that easily done. You know, Chinese exclusion is finally passed in 1882, but there's several hurdles that the Pacific Coast anti-Chinese movement has to have to pass. The first hurdle is that there is a treaty between China and the United States that was negotiated in 1868 called the Burlingame Treaty. And that treaty had a provision for free migration between the two countries. Uh, and that was um, a gesture of friendship towards China um, that was in the treaty. I mean, the treaty was a strange combination of uh unequal provisions um, that had been laid down as as early as the Treaty of Nanjing um, after the Opium Wars. It had many of the same provisions like extraterritoriality and, and um, you know, et cetera but it did have um, a provision of free migration. And that was because um, it was negotiated by an American, uh, Burlingame, uh, who actually represented the Qing government in this. He was a ambassador appointed to China by Lincoln. Um, and he thought that the British and the other Western powers were, were ruthless and, and too negative towards China. So he wanted to have a more friendly relationship. So the Burlingame Treaty has this provision for free migration. So Congress cannot pass an exclusion law uh, until they revise that treaty. And they're not able to do that till 1880. Uh, and the Chinese agreed to it, I think. Uh, the Chinese are very reluctant to start making exceptions to this, but they, they get pushed into it. The other hurdle that the exclusionists have to uh, mount is that there's not unanimity in the whole country about Chinese exclusion. In the 1870s, uh, you still have uh, an anti-slavery politics in the North and in the upper Midwest. Um, Reconstruction is uh, in retreat, but it's not completely um, dismissed. So when you read the debates in, in Congress over the Chinese exclusion bills, it's interesting that you you there are voices from northern and midwestern uh, senators who say, "Well, wait a minute, aren't they going to just be like the Germans who come and they'll eventually be a part of us?" Or wait a minute, are you sure they're slaves? I don't. Where's the evidence that they're slaves? So there's skepticism and uh, some pushback, but um, but as I said, Re- reconstruction is in retreat. Um, they're not a strong force. And what enables Chinese exclusion to pass the U.S. Congress is an alliance between the West and the South. Those are the two bastions of white supremacy in the 19th century. And if I may say so, they remain the bastions of white supremacy in our political map today. If you exclude California, the West is all red on our political map, and the South is all red. So this is an alliance of white supremacy um, and, uh, and, and forces that want to keep the, the vote limited to white property men. Um, and they win, they, they, they win in terms of overturning reconstruction and ushering in Jim Crow in the South, and they win in terms of Chinese exclusion. And I, I don't think historians have looked enough at these connections in national politics and this alliance of white supremacy. I think this is something we need to to study more. Um, There is a a very welcome trend in American history to think of Reconstruction as not only being a a sectional question, a question of the U.S. South, but something that is a national phenomenon. But then, of course, it has different iterations around the country. um, And the conservative... Uh, racial backlash that you see in the 1880s um, is aimed at, uh, obviously aimed at Black people in the South, but also aimed at uh, Asians in the West.
1: Yeah, Marilyn, like, you know, something that we touched on earlier, uh, she talks about the genesis of the Natal dictation uh, test and and how it actually came from the American South. You know, it was part of these Jim Crow laws that it was, you um, you know, you know, trying to exclude African Americans from voting, using uh, kind of linguistic barriers and, and uh, literary tests. And, and this is how it, it develops. And uh, I think that's what you and Marilyn and uh, others do so well in that kind of global history, you know, seeing these similarities and differences. But one thing that your book continually emphasizes is the agency of the Chinese, you know, and that uh, and you particularly point this out in in, in your journal of american history article um, from 2015 as well that you know because of this kind of cooling myth that has uh, been repeated by historians people have overseen or neglected to give um a voice to many of these chinese immigrants um but you you consistently for instance um quote from the chinese scholar and diplomat um and apologies uh for the mispronunciation Huang zun um but also you, you know you talk about people like um low kong meng in uh, victoria and and some of their reactions to the uh restrictions that were brought in and to, to these anti chinese movements and in doing so you 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 show the variety of the chinese community you know you have merchants like Lokong Meng and then scholars, but then, and, and when you talk about the Chinese working on the gold fields, for instance, you talk about these again, apologies for the pronunciations, but the Qigan, um, these kind of uh, groups, you know, that were very like Euro American social organizations in the minefields, but often better organized. Um, but yeah, what, what was the reaction of um, Chinese miners and the Chinese communities to these attempts to exclude them?
0: Well, the communities all push back. They all resist um, their similarities and differences in different places. The main social organization of the Chinese across the diaspora is the Hui guan the family or district or hometown association. They are adaptations to associations from China. They're also secret brotherhood societies. Um, and there is actually a vast international network of uh secret brotherhoods uh generally known as the Gang, but in australia it was called the um the uh, yi hing in cantonese um but they're all based on the same uh ritual oaths um, and uh and they're internally egalitarian um uh, collectivities um and th- those are in a way an alternative to the family and Hometown associations because they are um, fictive kinship organizations. They're brotherhood societies, but they're not blood brothers. They're, they are marginal, marginally um, unattached men uh, who for one reason or another are estranged from their birth families or birth villages. So you have both kinds of organizations on all the gold fields. But what's interesting, and then you have the merchants, right? The merchants who are often the leaders of those associations. Um, And because they have uh, more social and and financial capital, they become the spokespersons um, for the Chinese, people like uh, Lo Kong Meng uh, in Australia. Now, but where it's different, interestingly, is that they they didn't always have the same tactics. You know, in... um, in Australia, the Chinese waged uh, years-long campaigns of, basically, of civil disobedience and, and refusal to comply with taxes that were levied against them. They just refused to pay. They had huge demonstrations. They had petitions signed by five thousand people, nearly all the Chinese in a single town or district. It was a massive, massive campaign of of resistance, um, and uh, people went to jail. You know. Uh, they fought police in the streets. You know, it just went on and on for years. And finally, they, they pushed the colonial government of Victoria to reduce the amount of the tax to a very low amount. And it forced them to abandon the, prote- the so-called protection tax, which was associated with making people live in these protection villages, which were segregated um, encampments on the goldfields. And that was a failure because people just simply voted with their feet and they moved out. You know, half the pe- half the Chinese didn't didn't live in these protection villages. So in Australia, you have massive civil disobedience and noncompliance. In the United States, uh, where there is also a foreign miners tax imposed on the Chinese, they they pay the tax and they pay the tax in part because their leaders uh, agreed to pay the tax. Um, their leaders negotiated how the tax would be collected and used. You know, they they they've well they resisted it at first, but but then it, when they decided that it was probably going to be passed by the legislature, they negotiated it so that the revenues would be shared between the state and the local county, and that was a very shrewd move on their part because they realized that if the local local uh, governments had a stake in collecting this tax that they would perhaps leave the Chinese alone. And, and so the Chinese, in, so they've been accused uh, by some scholars of being sellouts uh, for compromising and not fighting the tax more. Um, I believe they were playing a long game. They thought that if they could just persist, if they could hang on, you know, they would eventually uh, survive and, and, and even possibly thrive. So they had a different strategy. Um, But there were other instances in the United States where Chinese just refused to obey the law. In 1893, there was the Geary Act, um, which required all Chinese to carry a pass. Um, And the same uh, Hui Guan leaders called for a boycott and told people not to register. And so people didn't register. Um, And so uh, that was very spottily. uh, enforced in California, so there were other times when they did resist. But I think I think it's you know it's it's just interesting that in different places people had different ideas about what to do. In in the United States, they brought a lot of lawsuits. Uh, less so in, in Australia. In the United States, the Chinese figured out that if they didn't have the vote, uh, they could use the courts, uh, and so they did. So a lot of American immigration law is actually based on precedents set by rulings by the Supreme Court in Chinese
1: cases. It's fascinating because, um, let's say in my work in the 20th century, you know, um, there's the so-called gap hypothesis, which means that there's usually a gap between what a state says it wants to do with migration and what what it actually can do. And usually one of the explanations put forward to explain this gap is this, the fact that migrants were able to go to, to court you know, particularly after 1945, because kind of liberal constitutions were opened up. But you know what you're saying there is this: this has a much longer history than many of us assume. There was there was also a global dimension to these protests from uh, Chinese communities as well. You know that you, you emphasize how you know that sometimes the the community in Victoria or different uh, state colonies in Australia look to China who 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 go to London. And also, who send delegations to to inquire about the conditions? So, um, just like the uh, discrimination against the Chinese was quite global, that you you have the Australians learning from the Americans and vice versa, and you also have the Chinese kind of diasporic community and uh, making global links as well. Something that puzzles me uh, somewhat is the fact that you know in Australia, because of all these restrictions that you talked about, and also the fact that gold has been mined, is starting to disappear, that, the, you know, this leads to number the number of Chinese in, in Australian colonies decreasing, are perhaps going to Queensland, you know, more kind of um, isolated areas. Yes. Um, you know, in the 1870s and 1880s, there's a lot of the, the Chinese who remain are, are often working in, in different sectors. You know, like working in gardening, working in shops and merchants and things like that. Yet it continues. You know, it, it, was it just um, already used by politicians to almost divert attention? You know that this was this kind of scapegoat and that that they could use to boost nationalism, that they could boost, uh, use to to boost their own popularity.
0: Absolutely, um, especially from. Uh, The trade union's point of view in Australia, you know, Australia has a a history of very strong labor politics, labor representation. Um, Marilyn Lake has written about that also in terms of the progressive era and um, social legislation in Australia. So labor's emergence as a political force um, is much stronger in Australia than in the United States. In the United States, labor never gets (laughs) that kind of independent political voice um, in part because we have a two party system. So labor is always subsumed by one party. But in Australia, um, as in England, um, labor is is a significant political voice. And I think it's um, not well understood how much the Chinese question helped labor uh, build its political capital, so to speak. Um, In Australia, um, the labor movement definitely used the Chinese question to uh, become politically prominent and and to uh, be a a force against liberal politicians. Uh, The same is true in in, uh, Great Britain and British metropolitan politics. Uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. So these were, um, uh, in a way they replicated what happened in California with the so-called Workingmen's Party that used the Chinese question uh, to uh, catapult themselves into California politics. But in California, the Workingmen's Party quickly became co-opted by the Democratic Party and uh, ceased to be an independent force. But, but the Chinese question was uh, an active uh, dynamic in all of these uh, movements of white labor white male labor and it served um, uh, served a tremendous purpose in terms of building their their political clout
1: yeah this is something that um, at least when I'm teaching about these topics that I try to emphasize to the students that you know in the late 19th century early 20th century a lot of these um, xenophobic kind of movements were were led by the left, you know, that earlier you were talking about, you know, how states are Republican in the US and things like that. And that's often um, people associate right wing uh, parties more so with um, anti immigration and nativism. But in the late 19th century, it was almost the opposite that a lot of these you know, right wing parties were in favour of cheap labour. Uh, whereas these uh, working men's parties and trade unions were, were very much against, and I even a, a former student of mine did a, a really nice thesis on the Second Internationalist and its debates about immigration in the early 20th century and, and uh, conferences in Stuttgart and Amsterdam, and they they were still talking about this trope of the Cooley question. You oh know, really? Yeah, that you know that even though. There was very little indentured migration by then, and um, they were still using this as a kind of way to excuse their racism, you know. Um, so, th- so this in- endured. Um, but something that we haven't touched on yet, but um, is um, the focus of another episode in this podcast series, is uh, South Africa, because y- you also dedicate uh, much space to South Africa, but. Um, it comes later on in your book because it's it's uh, the start of the 20th century, but I, I spoke to uh, Catherine uh, Pile from KwaZulu Natal University about opposition to Indian immigrants in, in Natal in the second half of the twentieth of the 19th century and early 20th century, um, but you talk about Transvaal um, and and how it oversaw the arrival of over 60,000 Chinese indentured miners in the early 1900s and And you also emphasize how in the late nineteenth or second half of the nineteenth century, these questions were everywhere you know the women question all these questions but um how, how did the Chinese question play out in South Africa compared to the Australian colonies and to the us
0: the The question of Indian immigration to the Natal, I think is a direct relation to the Chinese question in South Africa, as I'm sure you your uh, other podcast, uh, discuss, you know, Indian workers are brought on contract to work in the sugar plantations in the in the Natal, in the uh, I think starting in the 1870s or 1880s. So it's part of the whole move of the British to ship indentured workers from India to plantation colonies around the world. I mean, they go to Mauritius, they go to the Caribbean, they go to Fiji. You know, these are all replacement labor for slave labor. In the Natal, it's not so much replacement labor, but it is uh, part of the whole move towards um, bolstering plantation agriculture um, within the British Empire. And the Indians in Natal become um, a, a question, meaning a social problem or a political question, because after they their contracts, um, they become... Uh, Free persons, and and the same phenomenon takes place in British Guyana, um, in other other parts of the empire where indentured labor is is uh, is not slavery. It has a, a term limit, and so by 1900, the Brit the the um, British in, in Natal are alarmed that you have. Uh, Indians who are former uh, plantation workers who are now shop owners, um, freeholders, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so when when the rand landlords uh, look for a labor force after the South African war to get the mines running again, um, there's a huge labor shortage because um, the war has been very disruptive uh, to the uh, African uh, Labor supply supply chains. A lot of them came from uh, Portuguese East Africa. You know, now Mozambique, um, and there was a great demand for native African labor in the Transvaal, not just on the mines, but on in farms and in the cities. So there's a huge uh, labor shortage, and the mine owners first want to get people from India. That's the natural logical source for them. They, they know that there's already a, a tradition, a, a practice of bringing indentured workers from India. But they have learned a lesson about uh, what happens when the contracts end. So they want to write into the contract that everybody has to go back home after they're finished. And India objects to that. India says, no way You know, they can go on contracts, but they they have to be free to choose if they go home or stay. And so the South Africans don't want to do that. So they cast about for another source and they think about, you know, maybe we can get black people from America. And Others say, no, 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 no. They're they're also too dear and they're going to teach the Native Africans how to how to resist. Uh, Okay, maybe we get Italians. No, no, no. They're they're too they're they're too dear also. So they finally settle on bringing Chinese. um, And it's a very complicated and expensive and uh, logistical operation to bring that many people from that far away. But they they set it up. um, And and those contracts are very strict. They are um, required to repatriate at the end of the contract. They're also confined to living on, uh, on compounds on the mine properties. They're not allowed to leave except with a pass. You know, they they work, uh, you know, deep underground, upwards of a thousand or two thousand feet underground, under very very dangerous and arduous conditions. Um, a lot of them are not even paid in sterling. They're paid in scrip. You know, on these iron tokens that they can only. Redeem at company stores on the on the mines, and only um, converted to sterling at the end of their contract. So it's a horrible, um you know. They're they're beaten if they don't drill as many inches a day as they're supposed to. Um, but there's also widespread resistance by the Chinese on the mines. They're not docile coolies the way the landlords had imagined they would be.
1: Yeah. Finally, May, thanks so much for giving us this real global overview. You know, we've heard about South Africa just now. We've heard about the United States, but also the involvement of people from Chile and Peru and Hawaii and Mexico, and then Australia and China and London (laughs) has been in there. But, you know, in uh, your book, you talk about how politicians in California, such as uh, the Democrat John Bigler... And Dennis Carney, the Irish-born leader of the Working Men's Party of California that you you, you talked about earlier, uh, used the so-called Chinese question to bolster their political careers. But you also mentioned the anxiety of, let's say, gold miners in the 18th, late 1840s, 1850s, and, and artisans later on, and about mob violence, for instance, carried out in 1867 against the Chinese by mostly unskilled Irishmen in San Francisco. And in this series, we've spoken to various political scientists about whether nativism is co- caused by supply-side, top-down political rhetoric, or demand-side bottom-up factors such as economic t- competition. And um, usually, you know, it's a mix of both. Uh, and Matt Golder from Penn, Penn State University talked about how, quote, high demand and open supply are both the necessary for success, so successful far right parties. So he was talking about kind of the contemporary period, but was the same true also for opposition towards Chinese immigrants in uh, the in second half of the nineteenth century?
0: You know, I think it's common for people to explain nativism as a response to economic competition, and I think that's that's not actually quite right. Nativist surges take place in politics. Um, uh, during a time of uh, what I call sectoral economic change, big structural changes in the economy. In the case of the Chinese, it, and also later, uh, just you know, very quickly later, um, with nativism against Europeans, this is an era of industrialization and urbanization. And in the Chinese case, it's an era of um, consolidation of a national market right after the Civil War. And the completion of the transcontinental railroad in eighteen sixty nine and uh, and what what happens in these times of large structural change is actually not economic contraction but expansion. The economy grows, but it grows unevenly, and there's uh, both opportunity and precarity for many people. so, the immigrants don't come and take the jobs of native skilled workers. The native skilled workers do experience uh, displacement, uh, unemployment, loss of power, but they don't—they're not replaced by the immigrants, right? The immigrants are opening up new sectors for the economy. So the idea that they're competitors is is misleading. Uh, insofar as you don't have uh you You hardly have any competition that's direct right it's more uh feeling a grievance about um, instability and uh un- prospects of unemployment restructuring of of local and regional and national economies. so what happens in the late eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies in California is the completion of the railroad uh brings very mixed results to California. The railroad was supposed to be this unalloyed benefit to the West, but it wasn't. It brought many more people to the West from the East, thereby uh, creating a larger workforce and and exacerbating unemployment. It brought mass produced goods from the East, cheap goods that displaced uh, craft goods, uh, goods made by the guilds. I mean, Dennis Carney's base was among the guilds, right? the artisan, the crafts workers, the bootmakers and shoemakers and cigar makers. Now when uh, so there there is some displacement by Chinese that Chinese are employed in mass production factories for some of these goods. But overall the, the picture is one of change brought by this national uh, market that California has now become integrated into. And um, and the railroad brings, you know, it brings a long tail of the depression of the 1870s uh, from the East to the West. So you have a situation of uh, insecurity, of grievance. And so the politicians weaponize uh, theories of difference that are offered uh, to explain why this is happening. Uh, so, uh, Bigler was the first to do that in the context of the gold rush, but later it's the philosopher Henry George that offers a very sophisticated theory about permanent competition from the Chinese. And if you read George on the Chinese, it's just full of the old stereotypes that Chinese are a slavish race, that they will never assimilate, you know, that they can survive on a bowl of rice a day, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he, George concedes that immigrants uh, in general will work for lower wages, but they eventually will catch up to native wages. And so the competition from immigrants in terms of wage competition, according to George, is a temporary phenomenon. But he says the Chinese are a permanent competition because of their lower wages. And even this question of lower wages is, um, we have to look at with some skepticism because Chinese often demanded higher wages. They just weren't given them, right? It's not they weren't willingly working for less. They often wanted to work for more. So, so the Cooley question then becomes um, a kind of a theory of difference that then that politicians then weaponize. And you can see the same thing, the same pattern, in the at the turn of the century towards Eastern and Southern European immigrants who were doing the uh, unskilled labor to build the cities and working in new factories. Um, uh, Eugenics and scientific racism are new theories of difference that give fuel to nativist movements and politicians. Um, And you can see the same thing at the end of the 20th century where you have a new globalization, a new restructuring of the economy, where you have uh, finance at the top and low paid service jobs at the bottom and uh, a shrinking of the American so-called middle class, many of them industrial workers, who are not actually displaced by immigrants, but they're displaced by artificial intelligence, you know, robotics, as well as capitalism's offshore, moving production offshore, But there is a deep sense of grievance uh, combined with racism about uh, losing what they thought was their control of American society. But the economic background is again one of big, massive uh, restructuring and certain sectors being affected by that, and then finding it very convenient to blame immigrants for their predicaments.
1: I think that's an excellent. Um, point on which to end because you bring it right up to the present day because you know you see such similarities and it brings to mind what a lot of political scientists talk about these kind of the idea of kind of the losers of of globalization of modernization but I also think it touches upon uh, I, I think a, a, an excellent book that I um, give to my students which is Pankaj Mishra's The Age of Anger where he also makes Links between what happened in the in the nineteenth century and, and today are more recently, you know, because of uh, what you outline. These changes, whether it be today with AI and our other economic changes, but also with the end of the railroad and uh, the, these kind of the idea that people are promised all these great things uh, and they're, they're not as good as they uh, as uh, the allure <laughs> what, you know had put forward.
0: Right. Um,
1: But thanks so much, May, for everything today. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from...
0: Yeah, it was lovely speaking with you. Thank you for having me.
1: You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhope.ie. You can also follow us on various social media. And if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie.